Welcome to the New Books Network. What exactly does the word holy mean in various religious traditions? What is the opposite of it in translations from the Hebrew? Is the antonym of holy in the Old Testament not, as many of us assume, profane but unclean? And if so, what are the theological implications and in human affairs of that difference? How did biblical figures such as Moses and Joshua justify brutal levels of violence against their enemies? What motivated that violence in the first place? And is there, in fact, any evidence that any took place at that level in those times? What did leading philosophers from Maimonides to William James to Abraham Joshua Hessel have to say about the concept of the holy? And is there a difference in meaning between the words sacred and holy? Is it even rational to believe that something is holy, or are such beliefs relics of the past that have only been used to justify religious violence? Is there a place for the concept of the holy in our time and in our actions and worldviews? These are some of the questions that Alan L. Middleman addresses in his 2018 book, Does Judaism Condone Violence? Holiness and Ethics in the Jewish Tradition. Given that in recent years we have seen the desecration of religious sites and murders and assaults and on, on, by and on religious people of all faiths across the globe, Middleman's book is timely for not only Jewish readers, but anyone who wishes to know more about the history of violence and the often seemingly contradictory ways God and otherwise humane people employ it or condone it. The book is a learned study of our sometimes bloodstained but also noble past. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I am talking today with Alan L. Middleman, author of the 2018 book, Does Judaism Condone Violence? Holiness and Ethics in the Jewish Tradition. Thank you for joining us today, Alan. It's my pleasure. I'd like to start by reading the first paragraph of the introduction to your book. It is, what is holiness? How is it related to morality? How is it implicated in that breakdown of morality that we call violence? These three questions motivate this book. Your book was published in 2018, and about that time and since we have witnessed the defeat of ISIS by other Muslims primarily, attacks on Christian churches in Sri Lanka by Muslims, shootings at synagogues in the U.S., and other religion-based, religion-related horrors. Many of the perpetrators of these acts of violence were acting on religious grounds, but not necessarily citing holiness as their motivation. Could you help us understand a bit, about, bit better the difference between religiously-based violence and violence grounded in the vocabulary of holiness? One fascinating argument in your book, for example, is that because of translation issues of the ancient Hebrew, the antonym of holy may not even be profane, but unclean. What are the implications of that difference theologically and religious history? You write, for example, if the antipode of the holy is the unclean, then there is no durable profane world that opposes it. Over to you. Well, uh, great. You've certainly hit on some core questions of the book. Um, so I think uh, among the questions that you asked, uh, I, you can uh, infer that the book deals with a number of, uh, of themes and approaches. On one level, the book is an attempt at understanding concepts of holiness in the Bible and in subsequent Judaism. To use the jargon, this is the uh, phenomenological task of the book. It treats holiness as a topic in the history of Judaism and tries to describe it. 
since my training is as a philosopher and not as a biblical scholar, uh, although I use a lot of biblical scholarship, my interest more is in constructive uh, normative thinking about holiness, ethics, and their relation to one another. But uh, the book uh, tries to juggle those two balls in the air. So let me um, tease out uh, some of the different uh, uh, questions that you asked and try to give at least uh, a provisional answer to them. So as you point out, uh, we're used to using a distinction between the holy or the sacred. I treat those two terms as equivalent and the profane. And some of the uh, thinkers whom I was uh, 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 trained to, to read in graduate school, like Mircea Eliade, uh, make an enormous uh, 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 kind of case for the, the fundamental quality of the holy profane distinction. But as far as I can see, particularly in the biblical scholarship uh, on priestly sources, such as the book of Leviticus, the basic distinction is not between the holy and the profane. Uh, that may be true for Christianity and perhaps for some other religions, but in terms of the, the Hebrew scriptures or what Christians call the Old Testament, uh, rather, uh, holiness is not a dichotomy. It is a concept that falls along a spectrum. So typically the opposite number of holy uh, is a word tame, or the noun is tuma, that we would translate as unclean or impure. So the term profane or the great biblical scholar, the late Jacob Milgram, prefers the term common. Uh, that does factor in uh, in relation to holiness, but it has a, a, a much more limited meaning. So let me try to flesh this out a little bit. If you believe that there's a fundamental distinction uh, in a religious view of the world between the holy and the profane, the holy is, is, is rare. Uh, there are holy times, there are holy places. Maybe there are holy persons who have a certain kind of power or, well, a holiness to them. But these are unusual, these are rare. And then you say, well, the opposite of that is profane. So everything else in the world is in some ways uh, less significant or perhaps debased compared to the holy. I think uh, in the Bible, because God has created a good world, uh, and you know, in the first creation story in Genesis 1, God punctuates the work of the creation by saying it's good, it's good, it's good. And then at the culmination of creation, it's, it's tov ma'od, it's very good. Uh, I think the basic goodness of the world, understood as God's creation, in Hebrew scriptures, militates against the world being profane. Uh, 
it's basically good and holiness is a kind of heightened state of goodness within the world. Most commonly in biblical Hebrew, the opposite of kadosh, holy, is tameh, impure. Hmm. There is a word chol, uh, and this is the word for profane or desecrated. There's a verb that means to, um, to profanize, to desacralize, or to, to desecrate. But what that refers to is once an item is holy, let's say you have, uh, you're an ancient Israelite and you dedicate uh, an animal uh, to God, you're going to sacrifice this animal. This animal goes to the priest to be sacrificed. The animal has the, the status now of consecrated or holy. If you say, oh, wait a minute, I don't want to do that, and you pull the animal back, taking it away from God, let's say you change your mind, then it becomes profane. So the term profane has this particular meaning of uh, like desecrated or deconsecrated or something like that. It's the result of an action that violates the sacred. But the world itself is not the result of human action. The world just is, and the world is fundamentally good. It's a cosmos, not a, not a chaos. So what impure means as a sort of general term is not like bad or profane or anything like that. It simply means that things have happened that prevent you from going into the holy place. So if you're walking along and you decide to, I don't know, pick up a dead lizard or something like that, <laughs> and then think you can go into the temple courtyard, no, you cannot because you're impure. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you're profane. It just means that you are ritually unfit to enter a holy place. So there's a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, there's impurity, which is taken away by certain ritual procedures like ablution, that is uh, being washed away with, uh, with water after a certain amount of time, perhaps a sacrifice to remove certain kinds of impurity. Uh, next to impurity, there's uh, purity. That is, most of the world, most of the time, is pure. Uh, it's really coming into contact with dead and disease-ridden things and certain fluids and so on that create impurity in this, this kind of biblical uh, uh, view of the world. So impurity, purity, the sort of normal state of the world. And then there's holiness, uh, which I, I analyzed along three different dimensions in my book. And then there's what uh, the Bible calls the holy of holies, uh, Kodesh Kedoshim, and that is the inner sanctum of the tabernacle or later the temple where God is thought to dwell. So the basic idea behind holiness uh, in the Bible is because God enters the world and dwells in a place. That place has to be a very high level of purity 
not touched by any impure forces from the outside, uh, principally impure human beings who need to be purified. And the inner sanctum there uh, is the Holy of Holies, God's own dwelling in the world. If God didn't dwell in the world, so to speak, uh, there would not necessarily be a palpable holy place in the world. There would still be holy time. So in the Bible, it's very uh, critical, as it is to Jewish life, that there should be one day of the week, the Sabbath, which is a holy time. Uh, and that means that you have to engage in certain activities. You have to forbear, restrain yourself from engaging in other kinds of activities. Uh, but it doesn't mean the other days of the week are, are profane or they're debased or they're not uh, good in any sense. They just don't have the heightened goodness, the special quality. They're not treated in the same special way as the holy day. So anyway, I don't want to uh, dwell on this too much, but I hope I'm getting out a, a little bit the distinction between thinking in terms of this spectrum of holiness rather than a dichotomy where the world is divided into holy and and yeah, one, one thing you one thing you wrote in your book that I that I was struck that relates to that as you write rabbinic Judaism continues the structure oops excuse me continues the structure of of holiness as a spectrum or field and later in the book you talk about they use the term graded holiness and when you, but they also say, um, in terms of the, of the purity, but you also say holiness in Judaism is worldly. And I was a little confused by how something can be pure and worldly at the same time. Could you discuss that? And also, how does holiness, how, holiness in Judaism is worldly, how does that differ from the Christian view of world of holiness? Well, I, I, one thing that uh, you have to keep in mind, or your listeners have to keep in mind, uh, is that uh, the Judaism that develops uh, before and in the first centuries of the Common Era, or what Christians call AD, uh, is uh, different in some crucial respects from biblical Judaism. In some ways, Christianity continues biblical Judaism uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a manner that is a little closer to the core of biblical Judaism than, uh, than Judaism does, than rabbinic Judaism. I mean by that, what's at the heart of Christian worship is a sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice uh, of himself in order to atone for human sin. At the heart of Jewish worship, after the destruction of the temple in 70 CE, common era or AD, as Christians say, there is no more sacrifice. Judaism becomes a religion uh, of a book. It becomes a religion of textual interpretation. After the temple is destroyed and, you know, notionally God no longer dwells can come down to dwell in a special place uh, on a mountaintop in Jerusalem, um, 
the idea of holiness, uh, I think, has to be decentered and it has to be uh, uh, reconstructed in some ways uh, in in Judaism. So that's uh, what uh, I was getting at with the idea of of worldly. Uh, a much later phenomenon in Judaism uh, arising in the 18th century, it's called Hasidism. And sometimes when people have this sort of stereotypical image of very religious uh, Jews uh, with the long black coats and the side curls around their beards, these are uh, this style of dresses from these uh, these folks who call themselves Hasidim, which means loyalists or pietists, uh, they have a concept of serving God in worldly ways. So, in other words, we're not um, talking about a segregated class of priests who have to maintain a system of ritual purity to serve in the temple to make sacrifices. That's all gone after the year 70. Hmm. Still Jews who have uh, often people with the name Kohen, uh, they are descendants from ancient priests. Uh, Katz is another typical priestly name in Judaism. It stands for Kohen Tzedek, righteous priest. But they essentially have almost nothing to do anymore because there aren't any sacrifices to be done. So once the temple is gone and sacrifices are gone, for the most part, that whole purity-impurity system that was crucial to biblical uh, religion, that's all in a state of suspension. And uh, in a way, Judaism becomes much more about the study of the first five books of the Bible that Jews call the Torah or the written Torah. So in some ways, these ideas of holiness that are really palpable in the Bible, they kind of become artifacts of a conceptual system that's no longer fully practiced. Uh, they become categories of law, uh, so to speak. So we still talk about the, the Sabbath as a holy day or the period that's coming up this weekend and goes on for 10 days, Rosh Hashanah and then uh, Yom Kippur. This is thought to be the holiest time of the year. Uh, but what that has to do uh, with is examining your ways, trying to improve as a person, trying to see what those practices, habits, dispositions, character traits, and so on you have that separate you from others and from God, that make your life less than it could be. In some ways, that's what holiness becomes. So part of what I look at in the book is, are there ways of keeping these very you know, kind of palpable notions of holiness as God's presence or the after effects or consequences of God's presence, are the ways of keeping that alive in post-biblical uh, Judaism and, of course, uh, for us in the, in the late modern world. Um, one of the... I could quote from your book, actually. You just say, what we need is a view capacious enough to treat both the biblical and the rabbinic dimensions of holiness. And how, how would a, a modern Jew reconcile those two 
I mean, you were, I interrupted you. You were going to say how they do it, but I just wonder what that would look like. Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, so the thing that, that kind of got me uh, thinking about these issues, I, I, I mean, my basic uh, in the area I work in is ethics. So <laughs> some, of, some of this phenomenology of, uh, of religion, of holiness and Judaism was, you know, things I really had to, to study in order to, to write about them in the book. But what um, kind of motivated me, but my basic question was, when we think about holiness today as modern or late modern, or some people it's postmodern people, um, holiness pretty much maps on to goodness. And I start the book thinking about uh, a person of great uh, moral excellence, Mother Teresa. And, you know, if you were to sort of wake somebody up in the middle of the night and say, tell me who a holy person is, you know, you might yeah. come up with someone like her. And as you sort of enumerate, you know, the traits that would qualify her uh, for being a, a, a holy person, they'd all be moral traits. You know, she served the poor. She was self-sacrificing. Her whole life was dedicated to the, the, the poorest and most beleaguered members of, a, uh, of an often impoverished society. So, you know, she had these exemplary traits. And I, I think we tend to go toward uh, ethical readings of the content of holiness. But it struck me that, well, A, that's true and that's good. And a holiness that undermined ethics or was unethical or immoral, I think that would be a very impugned holiness. But it also well, what, struck me that... One term you use in your book is you argue for it, the value of... That what? Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say you use the term moral realism in your book as, as a way. You argue for the value of that as a way to approach many of these issues. Could you explain what, what moral realism is? Uh, sure, sure. Uh, let me just finish my, my, uh, my thought. Um, yes, that... What I was looking for is to see how we can use earlier conceptions of holiness as something uh, in excess of ethics. Uh, it's clear in the Bible that holiness means something more than ethics. But we want to keep holiness uh, coordinate with ethics. We want holiness and ethics to be allies. That's the plan of the book. In other words, if you're bringing the Ark of the Covenant, uh, if, if there's a procession with the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which is a holy object, and it's beginning to shake, and it's about to fall off the ox cart, and someone reaches for it to grab it, and that person gets incinerated by divine fire, that's because that person has violated the holy. Mm. He wasn't in the right, uh, he wasn't the kind of person who could touch a holy object. Well, what are we supposed to do with that as modern people? You know, you kind of have to look at that as, as mythic. Mm. Um, but what I try to do is, is take that kind of symbol or that kind of story, 
which indicates dimensions of holiness that uh, are simply not ethical, but to see what can we reclaim from that and yet have it be coordinated with ethics. Because it seems to me that people who kill in the name of God, people who commit violent acts because they think the holy commands that they get from their religion override ethics, are doing something kind of like that, that, that mythological or symbolic or legendary bit from the Bible that I just mentioned. They're saying, yes, there's this very powerful, palpable concept of the holy that overrides mere uh, morality. Uh, I'd like to see what holiness can mean for us today, but have it work in tandem with morality. So one of the sort of philosophical tracks that I pursued in the book is to say that holiness um, is something real. Mm. And what it, what it is that's real is a kind of deep existential value. Uh, I just came back from visiting uh, with my uh, family in South Bend, Indiana, and my uh, first grandchild turned two years old uh, a few days ago. Um, when you hold uh, a baby, uh, your own baby, uh, or well, any baby, and look into the face of that baby, into the eyes of that baby, you feel the life, you sense the vulnerability, the enormous potential of the baby, uh, of this nascent human person, words like sacred come to mind. Mm -hmm. um, and you're not thinking about, you know, uh, what this child can do for me when I get too old to work or anything like that. Uh, there's no, you know, uh, there's, there's no uh, exchange value. Uh, there's a kind of uh, crystallization of the goodness of creation uh, that you could call an existential value or in a more religious register, you could call sacred value or holiness. So I want to, what moral realism is in the philosophical jargon is the idea that value exists independently of human valuers as a fact about the world. I think many of us uh, in the 21st century, earlier the 20th century, uh, we think of value as a sort of function of human desire. Like, uh, you know, I'm... Uh, you impart value because of your preferences. So um, I find uh, fishing to be a very valuable activity. I love fishing. Not all fishing. I love trout fishing on a fly rod. That's pretty much it. But other people would find that, you know, very tedious or frustrating or something like that. It would not have value for them. So I think we're used to this idea of what philosophers would call uh, – uh, an anti-realism or non-realism about value, namely that it's all a subjective attitude that human subjectivity sort of paint on to the world and value doesn't really exist out in the world. 
I think in some uh, primordial way, value is part of reality. It exists independently of us in the world. I think uh, theologically, this is another way of saying that creation is good. The natural world is per se good. But I think like uh, color, which in some sense is out there because uh, light uh, frequencies of, uh, of, of light uh, are out there, but it takes a certain kind of human organism, uh, human organ, uh, human uh, um, brain and nervous system to perceive color. So too it takes uh, uh, training and attunement and sensitivity to perceive value. But I want to say value is not entirely invented by human beings. It's discovered by human beings, and it's modified and shaped and cultivated by, by cultures, by different human cultures. I think holiness, or Kedushah, Kadosh, Kodesh in Hebrew, uh, is a Jewish way of understanding fundamentally the goodness of being. And when you encounter, uh, I think, the parade example of this, the human person, particularly the infant, you, uh, you kind of uh, are, are literally able to hold in your, in your, in your hands uh, the holy. That would yes, be more really. I thought that was very touching in your book, the sections about the babies. And as I read, I thought, this is a man who clearly has had actual experience with actual babies. And it was very touching. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, uh, my late wife and I had had some babies. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, apropos of the – oh, I'm sorry. I interrupted you about the moral – the moral realism, but I did wanted to to mention a term that you use a constructive theory of holiness, and I just want to provide for readers a, a, just a, a quick potted version of your book. But one of the features of your book is you categorize the concept of holiness in three ways: one, as a property; two, as a status; and three, as a value or pro or project. And I wonder, could you talk about the constructive theory of holiness? Do you mean by that? how people can access holiness or recognize it when they see it or strive for it towards it. Is that what you mean by constructive or is constructive a philosophical term of art? Uh, well, the latter. Uh, hmm. So let me unpack that uh, a little bit. When I try to make sense of all of these uh, different biblical texts and then subsequently rabbinic texts and medieval texts and modern Jewish philosophical texts about holiness, it seemed to me there were three baskets of concepts that applied to the holy. Uh, and often they overlap or coalesce. But it seemed to me that there are uh, instances in the Bible where holiness seems to be the property of objects. So when Moses is out in the wilderness with his father-in-law's flock and he sees this burning bush and he's told to take off his shoes and not to step on the ground around the burning bush because it's Admat Kodesh. It's holy ground or the ground of the holy. So for that moment in time, that ground was holy. 
doesn't mean it was good, it was moral. I mean, it's earth, it's soil. So holiness seems to be, uh, for some biblical texts, a sort of property that's uh, imbued in things because of the, the, the physical presence of God in the neighborhood. The ark that will, you know, zap you into, into ash if you touch it. It has a property, holiness. Another um, usage in the Bible, so that's in a way the hardest to swallow for a modern person. That just seems, you know, like complete science fiction. Um, mm -hmm. The status analysis uh, is when something is consecrated, which is to say dedicated to God, either through a sacrifice or a way of life or uh, something like that, uh, if, if God, so to speak, could say, this is mine, or you can say, this is God's, uh, then it has this status of holiness, which must not be profaned. That's where the concept of the profane comes in. It can't be desacralized or, or deconsecrated. And then you've, you have texts in the Bible, like a famous uh, so-called holiness code in Leviticus uh, chapter 19, where uh, the Israelites are told uh, in the divine voice, Kadoshim ki Kadoshani, you should be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So this is like a project, a way of life, uh, a constellation of values. And that code goes on to, you know, to describe what you should do to be holy. You know, you shouldn't uh, insult the deaf. You shouldn't put a stumbling block in front of blind people. You um, should be honest in your business dealings as well as, as, as ritual uh, matters. So I think these kind of three uh, rubrics or frameworks, this sort of quasi-physical property of holiness, a status of dedication, of relationship to, uh, to God, or the status of being a priest, let's say, or the, among the family members of a priest, and this more ethicized notion of a value or a project I use these three frameworks as methodologies to try to understand how some conceptions of holiness rise and sort of fall and peter out, how others gather more strength. So you could say in the modern world where we think of holiness very much in uh, uh, ethical terms, the value uh, or the project of life, the goal of becoming uh, uh, a more attuned, spiritual, godly person. That stream, which is very much you know, rooted in the Bible, I think uh, has more prominence today than some of the, uh, some of the other ones. I just want to remind listeners at this point that we're talking today with Alan L. Middleton, Middleman about his book, Does Judaism Condone Violence, Holiness and Ethics in the Jewish Tradition? And Alan, you've been using um, quite a bit of Hebrew in your in your answers, and I was struck in your book that you're a modern philosopher, and yet you write in the book, biblical Hebrew lacks a vocabulary for overt philosophical thought. 
did other languages of its era possess such a vocabulary? Was was Greek much more sophisticated in its in its vocabulary? And how do how do you how do you manage to to navigate linguistic issues between yourself as a modern twenty first century philosopher and and which many of your texts? Well, I mean, my uh, uh, belief is that the Bible is not uh, a philosophical book. Mm. There are some people who uh, have a sufficiently broad, eclectic, inclusive conception of philosophy that they want to say the Bible is philosophy too, uh, just as you find uh, origin stories or like a creation story in Plato and Plato's uh, dialogue, the Timaeus. You know, of course, there, there are some in the Bible too. I, I don't think that's right. What I do think is that the Bible is a document that reflects human thought. So not all thought is philosophical, but all thought can be analyzed philosophically. So I'm very fond of Tolstoy. Uh, one of my, I can't say exactly it was a pandemic project uh, because I started reading War and Peace before this awful pandemic, <laughs> but I finished it during the pandemic. I mean, oh, really? I, I, I think Tolstoy is, uh, he's not quite a philosopher, but he, he has uh, in some ways far more insightful things to say about the human condition than very many philosophers. So, so I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to valorize philosophy, but I think with the Bible, with rabbinic uh, texts like Talmud and Midrash and so on and so forth, you have, you know, very rich um, readings of what it is to be a human being, what it is to live in a cosmos, what it is to be governed by norms, what are the grounds of those norms, what justifies conduct, all of these sort of classic philosophical questions arise in these texts. They're just not wearing the philosophical uniform. You could recognize them as philosophy, and they may not be making overt philosophical arguments, but I think on the whole, the Bible and certainly rabbinic Judaism it does aim to persuade. It has what one uh, scholar of uh, uh, rabbinic thought calls um, uh, a, a, a disposition toward justified law. That is, it's not just this cookbook of thou shalt and thou shalt not. There are in the Bible many uh, motivating clauses. It tells you why you, know, you should act this way. You know, why be kind to the stranger? Well, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know, you know the heart of the stranger. That's a motivating um, reason. So I, I think um, in the Bible, particularly in Deuteronomy, in the, um, in the prophets, and uh, certainly in subsequent rabbinic Judaism, there's a tremendous appeal to human reason. Uh, so I think even though philosophy is in some sense um, not native to Judaism, uh, the raw materials for philosophizing are, are, are all there. So I feel it's my job as a Jewish philosopher uh, 
to think about the kind of deep structures of biblical thought, of rabbinic thought, of medieval, modern Jewish thought, using tools from philosophy to um, uh, sort of work them up to a, a somewhat higher level of abstraction and to open up a dialogue between modern and contemporary philosophy uh, and uh, religious sources. That's, that's sort of my, uh, my niche uh, as a professor. So um, by constructive, what I mean is uh, not just descriptive. That is, I want to take these classical Jewish materials and I want to actively advance a philosophy uh, using them. It's not, I don't call it theology so much because I don't see this as a kind of in-house parochial Jewish exercise. I see no, it not as, at all. I'm not Jewish I and I, I found a lot of value in it. I'm, I, I, as, as a non-Jewish person, it was very valuable to me to read. Well, thank you. I, I mean, that makes me feel like I've, I've succeeded because I think, I, I mean, what I think of as theology, which I esteem, it's just that I, I don't really feel I do it, is a kind of critical discourse uh, by believers for believers. I, that is, it already presumes a level of commitment and identification. And so it's a sort of um, insider talk in service to a faith community. Uh, it can be highly philosophical, you know, but it, it has first and foremost, I think the shared convictions that make it uh, an intellectual service to a community. I don't, I don't think I'm doing that. I think I'm, uh, even though I'm an insider, I, I think to be a philosopher, you have to have one foot outside at the same time. Well, I would be interested in your, your, your reflections on, you mentioned war and peace, considering you're given that your book is all about violence. And one thing that struck me in war and peace is that is how badly is how little any of the main mil, the military the men in the military in the in the in the novel even think about violence they just think about glory and and under the famous scene where andre is on his back or is badly wounded and he's just reflecting that everything's so meaningless compared to the beauty of god in the sky and 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 pierre is a is a, is a failed assassin he's just kind of inept and nikolai is on his horse he's he's being shot at and he says why are these people trying to kill me? Kill everyone loves me, me who everyone loves. And I just wonder, as you were reading *War and Peace*, did you reflect on on violence in the in the and the, the, almost a lack of violence? I mean, we see a lot of bloodshed, but we don't see much actual violence. Um, I I didn't think so much about uh, the violence as the transcendence. Mm. I mean, I think. Um, with Prince Andre and with Pierre, uh, they both have these absolutely shattering experiences, where we're in the you know in the midst of the the horror of the of these campaigns uh, against Napoleon, where their world becomes uh, I would say defamiliarized. Mm. Um, the whole scale of values by which they've lived their lives up until now has gotten badly shaken and they have this kind of stark 
confrontation with the cosmos uh, in which the, the ordinary lives of human beings seems completely uh, anomalous. Uh, I think that's what's going on when uh, Prince Andre is on his back in the in the field when he's you know when he's shot from uh, his horse, and what happens for Pierre when he's you know when he's taken prisoner. Um, so I I didn't focus so much on the violence as on the novel and some of Tolstoy's other novels as uh, kind of struggles with the meaning of life. Mm. And uh, spoiler alert, I'm writing a book on the meaning of life in Jewish thought and in contemporary philosophy. So by the time I, I got into War and Peace, I, this book on holiness, ethics, and violence was already a, a couple of years in the rearview mirror. So. Oh, yes, I noticed it on your on the profile of you at the James Madison James Madison Program and American Ideals Institution, where you're visiting scholar this year under rather difficult circumstances, I imagine. But it said that you were working on a book about nihilism. And I thought, given that these the, the riots in the streets and so forth, that nihilism is very relevant and timely. As a, as a topic, is 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 it nihilism historically, or did, were you were you inspired by by the chaos of of our modern times? Um, I think it's a natural progression from what I've been doing. I mean, the I wrote a book uh, came out in two thousand nine on hope, and then. The next book I wrote on was Human Nature, and then this book on holiness. So I'm I'm sort of constantly circling around, um, uh, taking taking different different stabs at what a full, uh, well lived life is. Uh, so that I, I think it's sort of a natural progression. I, the, the meaning of life business is uh, uh, sort of relatively recent development in Anglo-American philosophy. I mean, I think for much of the 20th century, uh, academic philosophers thought that that was a nonsensical question. It was sort of the you know lead example of a idle question that shouldn't be asked, but oh, the past 20, 30 years, philosophers have really returned to it and have been taking it very seriously. So there's quite a lot of literature out there about it, and it it picks up many of the themes that I've been working with. So, Who would be examples of, of your contemporaries who have returned to the subject of the meaning of life and the value of life? Of- uh, well, I mean, some, the, the, some of the, the great ones who are, uh, you know, of, a, of another, an older generation than, uh, than I, um, the late uh, Robert Nozick, uh, for example, in his book, The Examined Life, uh, the great uh, Thomas Nagel in his book, The View from Nowhere, uh, Harry Frankfurt, uh, Susan Wolfe. Uh, even a, a real um, 
kind of hardcore positivist, uh, A.J. Eyre, who helped to bring uh, Vienna Circle logical positivism to, to Britain uh, in uh, the first half of the, the 20th century, uh, he, he wrote an essay on, uh, on the meaning of life. Uh, uh, a lot of a, a lot of folks today: uh, Thaddeus Metz, John Cottingham, uh, John Wisdom, uh, all kinds of people. My interest in that is that uh, I think the question of the meaning of life is not uh, an ancient question. Uh, you're not going to find much in the Bible, with the possible exception of the book of Ecclesiastes, about nihilism, absurdity, the meaning of life. Uh, ancient people were interested in questions like, what is the best way of life? What is the most natural way of life? That's a kind of Greek uh, obsession, uh, to live the the best way of life for human beings would be the most natural way of life. So what, is, what does that mean? How do you read nature? Or the, I think the Bible's interest is what is the, the holy way of life? How can human beings be most godlike given the absolute categorical uh, distinction, the unbridgeable gulf between human beings and God? So this question about what is a meaningful life? It's kind of a modern question. It really gets off the ground in the, uh, in the 19th century. It's actually the first time we encounter that phrase in English, the meaning of life. It comes from uh, uh, a British author, Thomas Carlyle, who read a lot of German idealists. And it was a German writer, Hölderlin, and uh, his uh, and the, the Romantics, early 19th century Germany, that used this term, meaning of life. And I think you get to the idea of life as meaningful because you have the specter of life as meaningless. You have the growth of this also early 19th century word, this, this nihilism, this, this idea that there are no foundations, everything just caves in. It definitely has something to do with a certain kind of God or what Nietzsche calls the death of God. So I think in previous ages where uh, there's a kind of pervasive uh, ambient convictions about the reality of God, it, the question of whether life is meaningful doesn't quite arise. I think there's always a search to make life meaningful, but it's not formulated as a, as a formal question. Um, well, I wanted, so a lot of the meaning of life literature is pretty atheistic. I mean, it's really uh, philosophers trying to say, okay, this question is not nonsense. It's an important question, but none of the religious answers are any good. How can we not succumb to nihilism, not just say everything's absurd? Uh, what you know, kind of modern uh, substitutes do we have for the religious faith that once yes, gave a pervasive sense. I was uh, going to say in your book, you write rather devastatingly and amusingly of Ronald Dworkin that he struggles to deny 
I mean, he tries to come up with a religion without God. And you say, he's just parasitic on, on existing religion. He just, he's struggling. He's just can't, you can't reconcile his view with, with actual religion is just sort of a, an imitation and a, as I read that, as I read, you maybe I'm getting it wrong on that, but that was my reaction to that passage. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think I don't remember putting it ex- that harshly, but I I agree with you. And uh, I, what I, what I want to do in this book is show that Judaism has something to say. It's not just some you know, ancient thing that can be dumped by contemporary secular philosophers into this wastebasket of discredited um, Western theism. We don't need it anymore because we have science, that kind of really crude view. Uh, When you you say this book, the book you're working on now? The one I'm working on now, yeah. But it's it definitely grows out of uh, uh, the one that we're – that we've been talking about as, you know, as you just showed, because I'm very interested in how modern secular thinkers, which is the majority of modern philosophers, uh, how they, they try to reinvent um, some of the grounds for ethics, for meaning, uh, for human significance, while studiously bracketing out anything traditionally religious and constantly probing whether that's a cogent and successful project or if that's just using, uh, in a sense, uh, you try to use the value of currency that they themselves have discredited. So my book is wanting to vindicate some Jewish views, wanting to critique some secular views, but also using secular views to critique some Jewish views. I, I, I do think that the fact that Ecclesiastes, which on one level is a very nihilistic book that uh, really uh, asks, I think it gives a sense of uh, what I would call a trace of the absurd. It's not full on, you know, uh, uh, Camus-like absurdity, but it's definitely uh, close to that neighborhood. Um, I think think Jews have coped with absurdity for a long time since the Bible. And uh, while not the dominant strain, I think there's something there to retrieve and bring into dialogue with some of these contemporary philosophers. Well, one one aspect of your book, and I I know that I have to let you go pretty soon because you're you're you have things to do. But in apropos of scholars and the relationship of intellectuals, you hearken back to Maimonides, and you write, "For Maimonides, holiness is a status, an intellectual achievement built upon a normative way of life under law. The law facilitates moral intellectual virtue, allowing the highest good, intellectual love for and communion with God." And it's just kind of interesting that it struck me when I was reading that, that that's sort of a, a kind of a bloodless scholar's God. There's, there's not a lot of passion. It's very intellectualized. And it would be interesting to see if he, if you deal with him in your next book. It's hard to do Jewish philosophy and ignore Maimonides. <laughs> I mean, he was, you know, the greatest of the Jewish philosophers and, uh, uh, you you have to you have to continue to 
to learn from his example, although, of course, as someone who died in 1204, um, you can't, you know, bring back his Aristotelian physics or his metaphysics, his worldview. But you can you can appropriate some things, but people have been, they didn't even wait for Maimonides to die to start arguing about, you know, his understanding of God. Like for Maimonides, um, worse than idolatry, in a sense, is belief that God has a body, that God is corporeal. Hmm. And in Maimonides' great uh, legal code, he talks about how, you know, you have to avoid this terrible sin of ascribing bodiliness, occupying space to God. And already within his lifetime, a commentator from Europe on his text said, better and wiser men than he, than he have thought that God had a body. <laughs> so the discussion about whether Maimonides gives us a, a literally and metaphorically bloodless abstraction of a God, a, a radically apophatic philosophy, namely you can't say anything about God. There's no piece of human language that extends descriptively into the divine mystery. Or, you know, whether, whether he's doing that and that's really not very Jewish or whether he's actually gotten to the truth of the matter, if we're going to talk of God at all, uh, this is an ongoing struggle. It's, uh, it's called, in the Middle Ages, modern historians refer to it as the Maimonidian controversy. I mean, his guide for the perplexed was burned. Uh, so in a sense, the Maimonidian controversy has never ended. I think it's still it's still going on in some sense. So, yes, I will certainly continue to deal with my Maimonides. Well, I look forward to the next book, and I hope that you will keep us in mind when it's done and let us know, because our reader, our listeners would be very, our, as readers and as listeners, we would be very interested. I, and with that, the scholar we've been talking to today, Alan J. Middleman, about his book, Does Judaism Condone Violence, Holiness and Ethics in the Jewish Tradition? And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.